0: Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbarine Khan. Each week, we explore beliefs and practices shaping our world. This week, we begin with Jesuit priest, Father James Martin. He is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the most recognizable priests on television. He has a sense of humor and isn't afraid to show it, especially with his friend, late night talk show host and comedian, Stephen Colbert.
1: Do you get that kind of applause when you say Mass? Every Sunday. Really? Yes. Right up here. You're hearing it.
0: Father Jim has written numerous books in a way that is accessible and has an appeal beyond Catholicism. His latest book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone, definitely fits that description. Released on February 2nd, just in time for the Christian season of Lent, which began on February 17th, or Ash Wednesday. I spoke with him via Zoom from his Manhattan home, where he lives in a community with 11 other Jesuits. Welcome to the show. It is not every day that I get uh, Stephen Colbert's chaplain on the program. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm happy to be your chaplain for your program as well.
0: Well, thank you. Hey, we don't have one, you know, so I might, I might take you up on that. Well, you do now. I do now. Hey, I. So let me ask you this question: What'd you give up for Lent?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I have a, a Jewish friend of mine named Rob, who calls me up every year and tells me what to give up. It's a tradition that started uh, at college because my friends in college thought, you know, why should you be the one who decides what you give up? We should tell you what to give up. And so that that turned into Rob um, every year calling me. So this year I'm giving up. He told me to give up mint, mint, um, zatar, yeah, zatar or mints, mint like like breath mints. Ah, zatar the um the spice and waffles.
0: Oh my god! Do,
1: yeah, I know it's kind of hard, but I actually do real penances. I try to just be kinder every Lent. Mm. Try to be kind. And I think that this year, you know, people have given up so much. It's been like a year-long Lent. Yeah. You know, so I th- I think trying to do more positive things might be more helpful.
0: Be more kind, though, coming from you. I, like, I would imagine you're a pretty kind person already.
1: Yeah, thanks for saying that. I mean, I try to be kind, but, you know, I can be, you know, I can lose my temper. And um, I think that the pandemic has made people more irritable, right, and more kind of touchy. I can lose my temper and I can gossip sometimes and be unkind. I mean, I'm never actively mean to people, but I think we can always learn to be kinder and more patient too, right? Sort yeah. of more tolerant. Look, I live in a community with 12 guys, right? So you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> it's I like mean. a
0: fraternity, right? It's it's mm-hmm. yeah. And,
1: you know, we're like a big family. Not everybody always gets along. I'll tell you, can I tell you a quick funny story? Sure. Um, when I first joined the Jesuits, my brother-in-law, who's a wonderful guy, Um, said to me, it must be wonderful. You live there and there, you know, never any arguments. And I said, (laughs) what? And he said, well, you know, you all have to be Christian and kind to each other. I said, well, you're Christian too. (laughs) I mean, so I think people tend to forget that life in religious orders is, you know, like mainly like a life anywhere else.
0: So we are in Lent after this incredibly difficult year. And, you know, when you say that it's One that may feel like for some a year of Lent, we're approaching the one year anniversary of the pandemic really arriving on the shores of the United States and the lockdowns and the quarantines and the political divisiveness and the politicization of how we take care of each other. When I look back on the last year, one thing that I think about is just how the debates over how we manage and respond to this public health crisis has really drawn some lines around what kindness and responsibility to each other looks like.
1: I think that's right, and I think it's um, exposed a lot of divisions in terms of the have and the have-nots. Uh, Pope Francis talked about the the pandemic. You know, early on there were a lot of questions: oh, "Is God punishing us? Is God judging us?" And Pope Francis talked about the pandemic not as God's judgment on us, but as an invitation for us to judge what's important, right? And I really do think that the Even now with the vaccines, you know, some people being wealthy enough and connected enough to get them, uh, you know, over people in the United States who might need them more. But then also um, what's called, I think, now vaccine equity, right? I mean, how fair is it that just the wealthy Western countries get it and people in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America and in India might not get it? You know, that's completely unfair. So there's there are the haves and the have nots and and I think Pope Francis has been a real strong moral voice in pointing us to looking at that
0: you know when you describe that tension, that desire to keep our family safe and praying for that vaccine, and then for someone to hear you say, "Well, wait a minute, you want me to now think about the needs of someone else, What about my needs? What about my prayers being answered?" And I see it, I see it unfolding in my community, I see it unfolding in my own family this feeling of knowing and reckoning with this sense of vulnerability. And a lot of people are responding to it differently.
1: Well, they are. And, you know, in this new book, I have learning to pray. I talk about that tension, um, which is the tension between, you know, being honest in prayer. I mean, look, I pray for everyone to get the vaccine. I pray for myself to get the vaccine, for my mother to get the vaccine, uh, for the guys in my community to get the vaccine. I think that's fine. But if your prayer is only, me and people I know and my needs, um, then it's a kind of it's a kind of lopsided prayer, right? If your prayer is only that, prayer should also move you to um, act and to help other people as well. It can't just be, you know, give me, give me, give me. So it's a, it's a tension, right? I mean, true prayer is petitionary and honest, but it's also it's also open and it's and it's social and it's communal. And you're right. Um, to take your second point, people have responded differently. There's been a lot of denial. Um, I think sometimes delusion, right, that this is not going to affect us. We're all human beings. And I think there is some sin in that too, right? There's some sin in not looking at reality. There's a reason why they call Satan the prince of lies, right? I mean, that the most extreme thing is to say that this is all a this is all fake. This is all a charade mm. that's going on. There's no real And there are a lot of I
0: mean, people that, who believe that. There are a lot there of people are. who, who I, believe I, that.
1: Right, which is which is a lie. I mean, it's you know, it's it's denying the, the people who have died and the people who are sick. And you can see what those lies do to people, right? You can see what that lie, that sin does to people. It, you know, it leads to death. So
0: Now, you wrote this book, Learning to Pray, which I, I told you at the beginning of our conversation, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if you know this about me. Um, I'm not Christian. I am Muslim. And so, you know, whenever I see, okay, I'm just going like to put, put it out there here. Whenever I see, uh, here's how you pray, and it's coming from a priest. I'm like okay, this is a self-help. This is really just for one group of people. But boy, you surprised me. I opened it up and I started reading the first couple chapters and I thought this is this is good. This is good stuff. You say this book is for everyone, and I have to say thank you for that because I kind of feel like I'm in that everyone category. <laughs> well,
1: thank you for that. You know, thank you for that because that that really means a lot to me. The first Muslim person I think that I've, I've talked to that has read the book, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people out there that I think are Muslim who are reading the book. That really means a lot to me. And, and you know, God is for everybody, mm-hmm. right? And prayers for everybody. I mean, that's why the first line of the book is so important to me. Everyone can pray. So thanks for saying that. I really, that's very moving to hear. And I'm glad, I'm glad you found yourself in the book because God wants to encounter you. And, you know, I mean, the book is, you know, I mean, it's from a Christian standpoint, but God's God wants to encounter you. As you know,
0: and I want to say this is almost like a confessional here. I'm not Catholic, and here I am doing this little confessional now.
1: That's okay, but I'm I'm a priest, so you can you can <laughs> I, I can go hear, for it, the, right? I can hear the confession. Yeah,
0: I you know I have my own complicated story with prayer, my own mm-hmm. complicated relationship with it. You know, I found myself literally kind of falling to my knees, not wanting to participate in this rote. Activity That I was told I had to. And then one day when I faced crisis, found myself craving to be in that fetal position on my mat. Mm -hmm. And then as a parent, I have found myself struggling to not want to traumatize my kids by saying, you must pray, you know, but wanting them to access and have this experience in which they feel it is accessible to them and something that they can make their own. And I come from a tradition where the prayers, at least being an immigrant and Arabic not being my native language, being told I have to pray in a different language, being told that it has to look a certain way, the ability to access prayer, I didn't learn until I was older that there are all these other ways. It was so lovely to read the book. And find myself, my own journey kind of echoed in some of your experiences, which how hilarious is that right Um, there, but I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Thank
1: you for sharing that. And I think your experience, you know, is probably, you know, typical of many Muslims, uh, but also more universal that people are taught a particular way to pray right. And, you know, at the, which which is fine. Like those ways of praying, you know, which I have a whole chapter on there on standard prayer and rote prayers, they're fine. And, you know, sometimes, as you say, which I think is very, uh, very important, you know, when I was struggling, I sort of fell back on that, right? Because it was there. And a lot of times with standard prayers and rote prayers, they do that for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Christian tradition, you know, like the Our Father and the Hail Mary, I must have prayed those a billion times. And yet, to your other point, which is also important, there's other ways of doing it, right? I think your 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 comment about your, your is it your son?
0: Yeah, I have two boys. I have two boys, and so um, I, one who's 21 and one who's 14.
1: Oh my gosh! Okay. Um Yeah. So the question is, you know, presenting it to to your children um, in a way that's inviting, right? So it, it's a kind of attention because you don't want to make it just another thing to do, right? Because then it becomes a burden. By the same token if they don't have any sort of structure or framework, then when they themselves find themselves in difficulty, they have nowhere to go, right? In terms of their prayer life. So I would imagine, I mean, I'm not a parent, obviously, you know more than I do, but I would imagine there is that tension between wanting them to have that resource, but also not wanting to like, you know, browbeat them with it.
0: You don't. And, you know, even though you're not a parent, you capture in in several of the chapters the, the formative experience that young people have. A lot of times in conversations I've had in this program exploring beliefs with people from different traditions, one theme that emerges from people who tend to leave the tradition that they came from or were raised in— um, and what led them or drew them into another tradition. One common theme is the trauma or judgment that they felt within the tradition that they were given of feeling like they weren't enough or that they yeah. didn't do it right.
1: Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about those experiences when I was a boy was to remind people that most people have those experiences. I'm not like some big, you know, mystic or saint. And the, the experiences I had at a boy, which is kind of asking for things, being in dialogue with God, trying to convince him of things, like get me a dog. Um, and then, you know, one moment I had when I was very young, sort of a almost like a mystical experience um, to remind people that, you know, they have those kinds of experiences, too. Um, and again, there is no, to go back to what you were saying before, there's no one right way to pray, right? And I think you're, you're right that people um, sometimes in religious traditions have really difficult times with prayer because they're told this is the way you have to pray and if you not only if you don't like it but if you don't feel like you're good at it then there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. right and they they carry that and so one of the invitations in the book you know which i'm i'm so glad you you enjoyed uh is that prayer is for everyone there's lots of different ways to pray the only right way to pray is the way that you find helpful in terms of encountering god and that also the prayer can be dry and you know kind of sometimes even boring and that's okay. Like, like any relationship. So yeah, I think that the shoulds, my old spiritual director, you'll love this. um, I didn't put it in this book. Yeah. I used to call it um, shoulding all over yourself. S H O U L D I N G. (laughs) And that is especially the case with prayer. You know, you should pray this way and okay. Well, I don't like praying that way. Well, you have to, Mm -hmm. and that, that really can mess people up. It's like saying, I look, the, the image is the relationship. And so, for example, you know, if you and I went out to dinner, like on a Friday, you say, let's go out to dinner every Friday. Now, if our relationship was nothing more than that, well, that's okay. but it could be a lot more than that. You know, it could be other kinds of relating. And so and then to take it a step further, if I were to say to someone, you should go out with your friends every week. And if you don't go out with your friends every week to dinner, to this place, you're not a good friend. Well, I said, no, that's crazy. I do all sorts of things with my friends. Sorry, this is the way to relate to your friends. That's the, that's the kind of image and prayer that we have to get away from.
0: My conversation with Father Jim Martin continues after this short break. Stay with us. To bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. I'm talking with Jesuit priest Father James Martin about his latest book, Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone. Father Jim is beloved by many for his advocacy and work on behalf of communities often excluded and marginalized, including the LGBTQ community. And because of that advocacy, he has been attacked by conservatives, some of whom have called for him to be defrocked. But those pressure tactics to silence him failed. And what's clear from his latest book, he's making a case again for inclusion, that cultivating a prayer life should be accessible to all.
1: God wants to be in relationship with everyone, not just, I mean, you will laugh when I say it, but not just Catholics. I mean, God <laughs> wants to be in relationship Catholics and Christians and Protestants and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. I mean, I've had so many people come to me for advice over the years that to, to focus it just on Catholics or Christians would have seemed crazy because I've had, look, I had a I had a, a rabbi for a while who was a spiritual directee of mine, as they say. And, you know, I mean, I need to take him where he is and how God is active in his life. And the same with, you know, Muslim friends and agnostic friends and and seeking friends. So God, my my belief is that God is looking is looking to have a relationship with all those people. So I wanted to include all those people in the book.
0: You went to business school and then you decided to become a Jesuit priest. Just Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that journey.
1: It it wasn't until I, uh, I, I'd worked in the corporate world for about, I'd say, four or five years. Um, I, I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. I took a job at GE. And, you know, it was exciting. And I was living in New York in the 80s. I was a yuppie, to use a sort of a, a phrase from back then. And But then gradually, I started to feel a little less satisfied. You know, now, as you know, vocation, work is a real vocation. Business is a real vocation for a lot of people, maybe a lot of people who were listening. Um, but it just didn't seem to be for me. I felt like a square peg in a round hole. And one night I came home and turned on the TV and there was a documentary about Thomas Merton, Mm. the Trappist monk, and it just captivated me and it got me thinking about doing something else. And this is how God was at work through, through my desires. And this was the call. And, you know, I remind people in the book that when they're feeling that kind of desire for God, however it comes, you know, if it's in prayer or something else, you know, to pay attention to it. This is, you know, God works. I would say mainly through our desires in life when it comes to finding our vocation. So, yeah, so i I left the corporate world and joined the Jesuits and never looked back.
0: What do you feel like your biggest contribution is right now? what What are you trying to contribute to the world?
1: As every Jesuit would say, to to help people encounter God. In their, in their daily lives and in their prayer. You know, that's that's the basic thing that Jesuits do. Our, one of our unofficial mottos, it's not official, but it should be, is finding God in all things, right? And in this case, it was to help people find God in their prayer. Um, but I also do work with, you know, um, LGBTQ Catholics and, you know, refugees and migrants. And I mean, these days it's all from my, you know, from my home, right? I mean, I'm not going out. but um, But those are the kinds of ministries that I do on the side. But the main one is, to help people encounter God, right? Which is a good, I think, a good task for for anybody, no matter what their faith practice is.
0: If someone was listening and has a real kind of clarity in their mind about what they believe and don't believe, and they think about praying, but they don't have a prayer practice, what do you suggest they do?
1: I would say the first thing to do is to recognize that the desire you have for prayer and that the desire you have for deeper connection with God uh, come, is coming from god that that's how god works and so in the midst of the pandemic if you if you feel yourself um you know sort of asking big questions and wondering where god is and wondering if um you know god's part of your life or how god can be part of your life or you're desiring more uh, of god's presence because you're feeling lonely or overwhelmed that's coming from god and so one of the things to 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 sort of remind yourself of is that this is not just your own kind of personal curiosity or this is God calling you and to sort of respond to that. That really helps people at the beginning to know that they're responding to something, that it's not just some they're sort of striking out on their own. And then the second thing I would say, I mean, my joke would be, you know, buy my book and learn how to pray. But my, my, (laughs) the second thing would be to, to try to explore different ways of prayer, right? Try to explore different ways of prayer. Notice what comes up. I mean, I talk a lot about that in the book and also be okay with dry times, right? It, It would be like saying, You know, to someone who falls in love. Right. Um, So you say, what will I expect? Well, you know, you expect this and, you know, sort of intimacy and physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. And but, you know, there's also going to be tough times so that that shouldn't sort of um, scare people off. Right. You know, it can be kind of boring and, you know, relationship can be a slog, but it's about the relationship and about the fidelity to the relationship ultimately.
0: You know, I was wondering if you're going to say the word commitment, because I think that there is something about, you know, you're reminding me of something my mom used to say. I remember leaving home and she's like, are you praying five times a day? And I didn't want to lie to her. You know, I I really want I want to be honest. I said, Mom, I am finding other ways to pray. Mm. And she just she kind of paused and she said, she said, what does that mean? And I said, well, I go for a walk down into the park. Um, or I, you know, do meditation and yoga and I get really present and I feel like I am having this spiritual experience. And she listened and she said, well, that's all really good, but you need to pray five times a day. And it was an interesting conversation we had because what she said is, I know that those five times might feel like you're just moving through the motions, but I want you to get the discipline because you need to have that discipline so that when you need it it's there you know how to do it
1: yeah, yeah that's a good insight from your mom and i also think that that not only the commitment but the regularity means that you're you're more open to having those experiences because again to use the relationship model if you're seeing a friend every single week okay there's a, there's an openness and a an opportunity for deep things to happen right not maybe not every time but if you never see them right? And if you never have that intentional one-on-one time, it's not going to happen. And I'm going to share something with you. I haven't shared with too many people um, because of your background. Often when I walk through um, Central Park, I'll see Muslim men on their prayer mats, if that's the right word, Mm -hmm. facing, I assume, facing Mecca, right? Right. And praying, which I just think is beautiful. In the middle of the day, I mean, I I happen to see a group of them um, at the the entrance to Central Park near where I live, I think it's beautiful. And the other thing that I don't think I've shared with anyone, I find that that physical posture, right, of the the kneeling and your your mm-hmm. forehead on the ground, tremendously conducive to prayer. And I found that uh, one of the places I pray that um, is in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, which is the holiest site in the Christian world. I mean, other than like the heart of a believer, I always say, but it's where Jesus's tomb is and where he rose from the dead. And I was so overwhelmed by the holiness of the place. To me, that was the most appropriate physical posture. Mm. And I find it very helpful for prayer. And so now, would I ever say to somebody, you know, another Christian or another Catholic, you must pray this way? No, I'd say like, this is my way of praying, you know? And I, I really find it helpful. And I got that from, you know, Muslim men that I see in New York City. Mm. So I've it's, it's tremendous. So there's something about posture, I think that's really important.
0: was something in the book about what happens when no one answers like you feel like you're alone there and that sense of disappointment and just like huh i put all this effort in and you're not here
1: yeah and that's very common one of the things i wanted to sort of focus on and face clearly in the book are some of the hardest questions in prayer i think the hardest one is what happens when you pray like what actually happens when you close your eyes and i talk about the various things that can happen emotions memories desires insights feelings words and phrases but also that that really even maybe even more difficult question is what happens when it feels like your prayer is not answered? I think that's really important because so many books on prayer avoid that topic.
0: Because it's difficult. And you, you're kind of giving this promise of something.
1: And in the gospels, Jesus says, Ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door shall be open. Whatever you ask for, you're gonna get. I mean, that's pretty clear in the gospels. And yet, look, we have to be we have to be honest. Uh, That doesn't happen for a lot of people. So if I pray for someone who's sick with COVID not to die and they die, my prayer was not answered. Now, what God is doing and where God is, is a little more mysterious. And the answer to the question is, why doesn't it seem like we get what we pray for all the time? The answer is, we don't know. I think we need to be clear about that, which doesn't mean that you're not still in relationship with God. I mean, the invitation is to be in relationship with a God that you don't understand. That's the relationship that then that's the that's the call in those situations but I think the the danger is kind of soft peddling that question right and pretending that it doesn't exist or, or' giving some vague answer and i I talk about some of the vague answers in my book why, why they're always so frustrating.
0: I want to ask you about the role that communal prayer plays and what your take is when those prayers can be in in their own way exclusionary or filled with judgment.
1: We are social beings, and so we naturally want to pray with one another. There's a reason I would say that Jesus called 12 apostles and not just one guy, right, to be his assistant, which he could have, but he knew we needed a community. But you're right, in, in a lot of situations, or maybe in some situations, people find that Parts of the liturgy or parts of the church's tradition or whatever religious tradition you have can feel exclusionary um, and can feel, you know, like it's a block, you know, between you and God. And I think um, one of the, you know, I I hope helpful insights in the book is that God can communicate with you anyway, right? That that as St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits said, uh, the creator can deal directly with the creature. So I meet mean, a lot of people who have trouble with their their religious traditions. God is still in relationship with them. I do believe that, you know, people are naturally as I said communal and social, but that doesn't mean that you can't pray, that you shouldn't pray, that God's not going to answer your prayers. So I think it's I think it's important to see God is bigger than religion, right? God is not contained in any one religion. God is not Catholic, right? Let's just say that. God's All right. Not Catholic. You just did. God's not Catholic. <laughs> and so it's a it's a it's an invitation for people who might struggle to remember that God is still with them.
0: You talk about the religious institutions that we have built up um, that foster that communal prayer. It also can create a sense of solidarity, a sense oh, sure. we're in this together. We're in this difficult moment together. And I can't help but think about our brothers and sisters in Texas without power or the you know babies in tents in camps on the border and the children who are starving in Yemen. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I find myself thinking about all of that suffering. I just want to ask you what role prayer and communal prayer plays in how we take all of that suffering, all of that emotion and respond. It's
1: a great question. And I would say that one of the reasons that you're thinking about that, you know, you yourself and others is that God is raising that up within you. And so to pay attention to that. So in other words, the compassion and the sadness we feel about all those people you met and so many more, right? All the people on the margins, all the people who are struggling, all the people whose lives are in danger is, is God's compassion, right? And that is being expressed in your heart to move you. I mean, how else would God move us other than to evoke these feelings of compassion within us? And so the, the question is what's the response, right? So when we feel pity, I mean, oftentimes when Jesus sees people who are struggling, the, common is his heart was moved with pity. The Greek is he felt it in his guts, right? He had to, he had to act. And so the question is, what do we do in response? And the the Christian response, well, the Christian response and also the ethical response, the believer's response is to answer God's call and to do something. For me, that's one of the main roles of prayer, not simply asking for God to help, but recognizing that the feelings that we feel are being raised up in us so that we can help each other. Yeah, right.
0: I have this really multi-faith family. Mm-hmm. So whenever I hear someone talk about and when I think about these things, I'm always mindful of how it's landing in the ears yeah. of my, mm. my loved ones who are good, wonderful, compassionate, empathetic people. And I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with in prayer that I've seen is the feeling that that somehow is an entry door for only one type of person.
1: Oh, you mean prayer? Yeah prayer is an entry for only one kind of person. I think one, one way to sort of respond to that is to see all the people, the different kinds of people who pray. I mean, so you can go to a synagogue, you can go to a mosque, you can go to a church, you can go outside um, in New York. And that that statement is, no. So it's not just for Catholics or it's not just for Christians or it's not just for people who seem outwardly pious,
2: mm.
1: right? I mean, hey, the, the reading today, um, which I'm going to be preaching on, is from Isaiah and you'll like this, especially, uh, you know, given the background of, of the show, is it says uh, on the day of your fast, you carry out your own pursuits. You drive all your laborers. Your fast ends in quarreling and fighting, striking with wicked claw. Would that today you might fast so as to make your voice heard on high. So then he says, this is Isaiah. Here's the fasting I want. And here's the kind of prayer I want. Um it's setting free the oppressed, breaking every yoke, sharing your bread with the hungry, sheltering the oppressed and the homeless, clothing the naked, not turning your back on your own. So it, it's not simply people who are sort of outwardly pious, right, um, who are the people who are invited to prayer. It's it's people who are also, you know, seeking justice, right? So I, I I do think we have this idea of the kind of, as they say, the frozen chosen, right, and that that's the kind of person who's who's called to pray. But we're all called to pray. And you know, in that in that reading from Isaiah, he's saying, look, you know, put that prayer to action. It can't all just be sort of, oh, I'm fasting, I'm praying, I'm I'm so pious. You know, and and Jesus says that in the gospels today too, you know. So it's 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 pretty clear in the in in the scriptures what God wants from us.
0: Father, it has been so lovely to talk to you. I'm gonna call you the chaplain of uh, Inspired. We're gonna have you back. We'll have to have some conversations about other topics because this was a lot of fun.
1: Always great to be with you. And um, yeah, keep me in your prayers.
0: Coming up, the Baha'i tradition of fasting and the faith journey of one interfaith activist who is working to build bridges. That's coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Ambreen Khan. Christians are not the only ones fasting right now. March 1st marked the beginning of the 19 days of fasting for Baha'is. It's a relatively small but growing faith community in the U.S. Researchers estimate that there are between 85 to 100,000 members across the country and an estimated 7 to 8 million around the world. Its adherents are relatively new practitioners because the tradition began in the mid-19th century in Persia. In the 1960s and 70s, Baha'i communities began to flourish across the United States. Many adherents were drawn to the message of racial equality, along with messages about the oneness of the divine, gender equity, and the absence of clergy. It's also a belief system that acknowledges and celebrates the contributions of other world religions, which are viewed as a continuum of revelation. It was those messages that resonated with Washington, D.C.-based documentary filmmaker and interfaith activist Jack Gordon. I spoke with him by Zoom on day three of his fast. He shares the evolution of his spiritual journey.
2: In my family it's it is by default an interfaith family. Mom was not Jewish but wasn't, you know, practicing in terms of a Christian. My father's side of the family is Jewish. And so I think whether by intention or just because that's that's those are the people that <laughs> that each other picked. Um, they have an more of an intercultural family, I think, mm-hmm. than an interreligious one. We went to synagogue every week. Um, we were in Hebrew school, Bar Mitzvah, the whole bit my mom was very laissez-faire. Her mother and sister and the sister's family became Baha'i in the uh, 70s, Wow. 60s and 70s. And so we had sort of this trifecta of things like religiously and cultural identity was very strongly Jewish in the household. Um, but then we had these Baha'i relatives. And growing up, I think there, there was really more of an interest in just people, you know, being an, having an openness to people and being interested in the cultures of different people rather than some sort of an intense like philosophical questioning about spiritual matters. You know, we we were Jewish because our our forebears were Jewish and that's and you continue the traditions because that's what you do in the family to keep that continuity going. Less because of some sort of dedication to God. When I was in college and I was curious about the, the Baha'i faith and that I think opened up a whole other realm for me so when I decided that I I had studied enough of the Baha'i faith to feel like okay I, I believe these teachings this, this is a very world-embracing teaching um, that was pretty fundamental. I felt like I, I saw my home in the Baha'i community which looked like everywhere in the world made up of people from all around the world even though I didn't necessarily have a concept of God coming into it The description of God and that divine power, I think, made logical sense to me and was very inspiring to me. Mm.
0: Jack, how did your parents respond to your decision to embrace the Baha'i Faith?
2: I mean, for my mom, it was really easy. You know, I mean, she has a very loving relationship with her family and she had no qualms with it because I think it was something that she respected and she found value in and saw that it was a, a really positive force in, in her family members that are Baha'is. I think for my dad, it was, it was more challenging because of this idea of quote unquote conversion, mm. you know, leaving something. But in my experience, I wasn't rejecting anything. I felt like I was building off of it. And in the Baha'i faith, the tradition doesn't ask us to leave behind our identity right my cultural identity is very firmly jewish i i i couldn't ever take that off of myself you know it would be like taking off my skin it would be impossible i think it's it's more about being able to frame what is that jewish experience for me culturally how does that fit with the other religious teachings that we see in the world and and i think that the concept of oneness that is central to the bahai faith it helps frame that for me in a way where there isn't a feeling of conflict or disagreement. Um, whereas I definitely felt growing up that so I, I felt a strong suspicion towards anything that had to do with Christianity. Um, ironically, because my mom and members of our family are, are Christian, you know, in terms of culture or upbringing, what have you. But Christians, if you look at the history, are always trying to oppress the Jews and convert them, um, you know, or tell them that they killed Jesus and that they're going to hell and all these sort of negative things.
0: And that was your experience growing up.
2: That was my experience in terms of my, my perspective, my dad experienced anti-Semitism growing up Mm. that, that, um, you know, that, that anything really had to do with the church was phony. And so that was something that was definitely a chip on my shoulder that I felt like I had to get over and, and I, I was grateful that I did. And I feel like once I sort of went through that experience, um, it made understanding the the ideas of the Baha'i faith a lot easier because I, I didn't necessarily have a resentment towards the person of Jesus or the divine message of Jesus, just like I didn't have any sort of prejudice against Muhammad and, and Islam. I could make a distinction between the acts of Christians as people and the message um, of Jesus as a prophet. So, the Baha'i faith is first and foremost—it's a world religion, it's an independent world religion. So that means that it's not a, a sect of, of another religion. Baha'u'llah very clearly and boldly claims to be a messenger of God. Right. So, if you're getting involved with the Baha'i faith, those are the terms. <laughs> and and <laughs> it's and, a
0: non-negotiable
2: yeah it's a it is it is not a uh, mixed salad of a bunch of different traditions, a grab bag of of different ideas and philosophies as sometimes it's it's portrayed because people are looking at sort of a surface level and not necessarily engaging with this I think much more profound and difficult concept of oneness, right. So oneness is is really. As simple as that, that everything is one, that the message of God is is one message. And the things that change are the, the superficial things, the time, the place, the language, the culture that it's been revealed in. So um, Baha'u'llah, who, it's not his given name, it's his title, means the glory of God, and he, um he shared his message in the mid-1800s in what was then Persia what's now Iran so he's his claim is to be the most recent divine teacher or messenger of God not the last one not necessarily a final one but one that sort of continues this line um, from Abraham Moses Jesus Muhammad and you know frankly many other prophets and messengers that are probably lost to history and and we don't know their names or, or um, the places in which they they were teaching. But the call of Bahá'u'lláh is really to recognize this oneness of humanity, to put away our, our superficial prejudices, um, our racism towards one another, which has which obviously so so long kept us separate. The exercise of being a Baha'i is a continual practice of refining my understanding of this idea of oneness. To shave the edges and the, the roughness off this, this feeling that, that we are separate from one another, um, that there is this up, us versus them mentality in the world, but actually that instead our true nature is, is one that we're totally interdependent and interconnected.
0: You know, you're as you're describing how the message of oneness drew you in and it felt like it was in alignment. It sounds like with the monotheism of the Jewish tradition. Am I hearing that correctly? That was there an alignment there?
2: I mean, again, I it's it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that because I wasn't thinking about it in theistic terms growing up. Mm. You know, I was thinking about it in cultural terms. Like it's very it I wouldn't say it's easy. For me to accept the oneness of humanity, but but I had been given a blueprint and a series of experiences growing up, which reinforced for me that we are, we are a family because we welcomed people into our family and felt part of their family, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Even though they came from many different places around the world.
0: I want to hear about your prayer life and the ritual specifically sure. of fasting.
2: It's so funny to reflect on these things because... Part of me wants to say, oh, I didn't grow up praying, Um, but that's the opposite. (laughs) That's, That's a total lie because I actually said prayers every single day. They were just in Aramaic and Hebrew, and I didn't really understand what I was saying. I knew how to make the sounds, but I didn't feel the connection, right? I didn't feel the connection with the divine. I felt the connection with my family. That was the thing that was that was emphasized as important. So I would say that when I encountered the Baha'i Faith, when I began to study that more, the act of saying prayers and saying prayers in a language that I understand and can sort of wrestle with um, was, an, was a new experience. And I think my life now as a, as a Baha'i is very different because in a certain way, my daily life revolves around prayer. Mm. It's, it's the thing that I prize most at the beginning of the day. My day is largely d- determined by how close to the beginning of the day I've said the obligatory prayer. What are the obligatory prayers in the Baha'i faith? The, obli- the obligatory prayers in the Baha'i faith, actually, it's interesting, you have a choice of three, um, and and it also builds in one of the things that I like about the Bahá'í faith because it recognizes that not everybody's circumstances are exactly the same. Some people have very intense jobs where they are are busy from sunrise to sunset, and and it would take a lot for them to stop during the day. And so there is a short, single line, basically prayer that if you say it with earnestness and, and, and pure intention is equal to fulfilling your ob- obligation for that day to say that prayer.
0: What is it? Will you share it with us?
2: I bear witness, O oh my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerless and to thy might, my poverty and to thy wealth. There is no other God but thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting. That one is supposed to be said between noon and sunset, but the long obligatory prayer is the one that I actually have connected with the most. And I have at different times committed it to memory, and then I fell off of, of doing it regularly, and so I lost that. And so I'm actually in a process right now. One of my goals for, for the fast this month is to try to commit it again to memory.
0: You just mentioned the fast, so let me ask you about that. We're in the 19th day fast of the Baha'i tradition. It started on March 1st, and it goes for 19 days. What does the fast look like for you?
2: If you've first thought about it on February 28th, then it's going to be a rough go (laughs) (laughs) to just (laughs) slam on the brakes and try to reorient your day and your life around not just the physical part of not eating but also the spiritual part of the fast which is the more important one and i find that it's it's better to start saying up you got like two months lead time start making some changes right Mm -hmm. so for me i try to go to bed earlier um i try to consume less media and i think in my prayer life i try to um think about what are the things that i'm going to study for the last couple of years, I've picked a text to to read. I have a a compilation that I'm reading this this time around. That's called Toward Oneness. It's a new um, compilation reflecting on um, what the Bahai writings have to say about overcoming racial prejudice. Mm. So that's one thing that I'm that I'm I'm trying to focus on during the fast. The moment that we have rushed to finish um a meal we've lost the spirit of what the fast is about mm. the the fast isn't about punishing ourselves the fast is about freeing ourselves from a certain materialism and on another level having empathy and connecting with people who don't have the privilege of picking up food or water whenever we want to have it right so that for me i think is the more important lesson to be mindful of the type of food that we're putting in our bodies that's why in the morning i don't like to have a lot of food because i don't think i need to like stuff a ton of calories inside of me to say like oh i'm not going to be able to make it through the day without it no if i have water and just hydrate myself the body will be able to function and if i've changed my routine for the day then I think I will physically be able to sustain myself through the day, you know, take on less things. The point is that we need to encourage ourselves and each other to be better people, both in our individual ways that we're carrying ourselves and be kind to ourselves um, and work on on growing as people and then also in our interactions with other people. So if we're going to be mean to people, then you might as well eat something and just be kind to people.
0: (laughs) what kind of practices do you have or what kind of practices do you typically observe when it's not a pandemic?
2: Right. Yeah. Well, I would say that the Baha'i community is very much that it is very much a community It's very social. It's very outward oriented, welcoming people of all sorts of different backgrounds and, and interesting to think about it in the context of the pandemic, because last year the lockdown happened right towards the end of the Baha'i fast Mm. And in a certain sense, it felt like the fast never ended because we never had that celebratory event closing the fast, which is the Baha'i New Year, Nauru's, on on the spring equinox, March 20th or 21st. Um, we never gathered, you know? And so for a long time last spring, it just felt like that energy of introspection and isolation in a certain sense just continued uh really up it, it's continued through the, the whole year because we're not out of it yet and so i think this year's fast has a different quality to it has has some different themes just like i think the celebration of passover will have a different meaning what are these periods of reflection and sacrifice mean when so many in our society have sacrificed so much, made the ultimate sacrifice in a lot of cases.
0: There is so much that we are struggling with. I'm curious how you're adapting.
2: Before the fast started, I had been mulling around this idea of playing with Instagram Live as a medium to have conversations, um, particularly with interfaith friends and and collaborators, and to use that space as as a place where we could have dialogue and also invite people to participate in this text that I'm reflecting on during the fast, particularly with people who don't really have a familiarity with, with the Baha'i faith and haven't engaged with its texts. And there isn't a lot of, you didn't have to read the verses from the, from the, the week before you don't have to know about what the main story is. It's a few lines and it's, you know, mystic in nature and talking about our, our soul and, and, and our place in the universe and so I'm bringing in different friends like yourself to just reflect on on what the passage is and hear some new ideas and sort of mix it up and, and bring in some, some new perspectives.
0: I'm really looking forward to it. Well, listen, before we close, are there any last reflections or thoughts that you'd like to share?
2: The show that, that we created, Interfaith-ish, is really about having these explorations together to be curious about what it is that other people believe and have a willingness to engage with that and to be surprised by the places where we have commonality and to be okay with the places where we have differences.
0: Jack Gordon is a Washington, D.C.-based interfaith activist, documentary filmmaker, and the host of a community radio program and podcast, Interfaith-ish, That's broadcast from WOWD Tacoma Park Radio. That's all for this week's show. This week's producers are Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder Maureen Fiedler and MC Yogi for our theme music. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe and well. And we'll see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.